The organization Taxpayers for Common Sense did an analysis for The Guardian back in 2020 and found that British Petroleum, known as BP, Shell, Chevron, and Exxon had accumulated $1.991 trillion in profits during the period of 1990 through approximately 2020. That figure was calculated taking inflation rates into account, but even without inflation, the total was reportedly still $1.6 trillion. A trillion dollars is a lot of money. It has 12 zeros. It's a million dollars multiplied by a million. It's a thousand billion dollars. These figures can be kind of difficult to grasp. If you earned a trillion dollars a year in salary, you would make $480,769,230.77 per hour. And that's adjusted for vacations and holidays. Just to give you an idea of how much money a trillion dollars is. Reports are showing that currently, as of April 2022, oil companies are reporting huge profits as prices at the gas pump and costs to heat homes have been skyrocketing. Toss in a war, and you have the recipe for huge corporate profits for the oil companies. In this episode of Federal Andy, we're going to take a look at why this is happening and how American taxpayers are supporting these companies with our tax dollars. Episode 2. Hey Jed, that's black gold, Texas tea. Let's take a look at how fossil fuels came to exist. Fossil fuels come from plants and animal waste from animals who eat plants. This process takes many years. Coal, oil, and natural gas all came to be thanks to plants through the process of photosynthesis that allows plants to capture energy from sunlight and use that energy as food to fuel a chemical process inside the plant. This process pulls carbon from carbon dioxide out of the air and hydrogen and oxygen out of the atmosphere in the form of rain or from water absorbed from the soil by roots. The carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen form into substances known as carbohydrates, which stands for carbo, carbon and hydrates, equals oxygen and hydrogen, or water. The energy from the sun is absorbed by the plant and binds these elements together to form carbohydrates. When carbohydrates are burned, the energy created comes from the sun that was captured a very long time ago when a plant or tree was alive. When you start a fire in your fireplace, the energy being burned creates heat, which essentially originated from the sun millions of years ago. 
every day, the world consumes many years' worth of sunlight by using fossil fuels. Virtually all of the energy that we use today originated as sunlight. Gas prices exceeded $4 a gallon for the first time back in 2008. The average price was around $4.11 per gallon in July of 2008 to be exact. A barrel of oil at that time was around $145. While the Great Recession, as it's been called, officially began in December 2007, most didn't take notice until everything crashed in the fall of 2008. The economy is like a huge cruise ship. It doesn't turn around on a dime. It takes some time. Most of the blame for the Great Recession has been placed on the subprime mortgage crisis, which began in 2006 as defaults on mortgages started increasing. But the cost of gasoline at the pump was a contributing factor as well. I researched historical gas prices, but found many of the sources I looked at didn't agree with one another, and overall the average prices seemed low to me from what I remembered, as I lived in an area that I recall hearing at the time often had some of the lowest prices for gas in the country. I do know that in the mid-2000s, prices at the pumps were breaking all-time record highs up to that point. It's interesting to note that recent recessions have been preceded by a rather sharp increase in the price of crude oil. For instance, during the period July through October 1990, the price of crude increased 135%. The U.S. economy was in recession for much of 1991. Again, between 1999 and 2000, the price of crude doubled and the economy slowed to a recession in 2001. From its low point in 2007 through early 2008, crude skyrocketed 96% and the Great Recession followed shortly. Nicholas Colas, a co-founder of Data Trek Research, says the magic number is 90%. When oil increases by 90% or more, a recession follows. Oil prices have a huge impact on businesses as well as consumers. I recall the prices at grocery stores began increasing in the 2000s as the cost of gas went up. Grocers said their costs had increased due to higher transportation charges to get items to their stores, and they were just passing that increase along to consumers. I don't recall those prices dropping to correspond with the lower cost of gas as we recovered from the recession, however. Maybe it's just me. One odd thing that I noticed around 2008 was that oil companies were logging huge profits while at the same time demand for their products was declining. The oil companies said they were just passing on their higher costs for crude oil to consumers. They weren't padding the cost to their advantage. During the first nine months of 2008, the major oil companies, which were BP, ConocoPhillips, Shell, Chevron Texaco, and ExxonMobil, had earned a record $125 billion in profits, 
which reflected a $35 billion increase compared to the same period a year earlier in 2007. And how did the oil companies spend this profit? Over half of it was spent buying back shares of their own stock. This act represented a huge sum of wealth transfer from consumers to investors. It needs to be mentioned that gasoline use in the United States in 2008 declined for the first time in 17 years. In fact, since 1945, there have only been four periods where consumption declined. The first was in late 1973, when the Organization of Petroleum Exporters, known as OPEC, became bigger, and conflicts in the Middle East, the Yom Kippur War among them, caused reduced production and a very sharp increase in crude oil prices, which naturally caused a similar spike in gasoline prices. Nations that supported Israel at the time placed an embargo on OPEC oil, which further strained supply, contributing to higher gas prices. Fifteen years would pass before the U.S. demand for gasoline would recover to its previous high demand level. The second oil crisis came in 1979 and continued into the early 1980s. The third was in the late 1980s and early 1990s when oil prices increased at the same time as the U.S. entered a recession. And the fourth came during the COVID-19 pandemic. From 2019 to 2020, Petroleum consumption decreased in every energy-consuming sector and decreased a record 15% in the transportation sector, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The most consumed petroleum product in the United States is motor gasoline. In 2020, U.S. gasoline consumption decreased to 8 million barrels a day, down 14% from 2019, which made it the lowest level since 1997. Gasoline consumption among U.S. consumers in 2008 reflected approximately a 4% decline, with sharper declines of around 7% in August 2008 and an even sharper 9% decline in September as the recession took hold with a stronger grip on the economy. So how is it that profits increased at the same time demand decreased if the oil companies weren't gouging consumers? If you pay $1 total in costs for pumping, refining, and transporting enough crude oil to make one gallon of gasoline, and you sell it for $2 a gallon, your profit is $1 for each gallon sold. If your costs for crude increased to $2 to make that same one gallon of gasoline and you just increase your prices to reflect your increased cost, consumers would pay $3 a gallon for gasoline, but your profit would still be $1 a gallon. So how is it, absent a huge cost-cutting program at the oil companies, or a CEO that takes a major salary cut to keep costs down, stop laughing. How is it that their profits increased so much when demand for their product decreased? 
Various sources list U.S. subsidies to oil companies at around $20.5 billion annually. According to Oxford Languages, a subsidy is defined as a sum of money granted by the government or a public body to assist an industry or business so that the price of a commodity or service may remain low or competitive. Proponents of the fossil fuel industry tell us that subsidies make fossil fuels less expensive for the consumer and keep customers' prices below actual market levels while rewarding oil companies with above market prices so they remain profitable. And this has the added benefit of making going green a tougher sell. I would call that corporate welfare, but welfare is defined as statutory procedure or social effort designed to promote the basic physical and material well-being of people in need or financial support given to people in need. Those definitions also came from Oxford Languages, and I see nothing in that about handing over gobs of money to highly profitable corporations. So it's not welfare, but it is an abuse of taxpayer dollars. Forbes estimates worldwide subsidies for oil companies in 2020 totaled $5.9 trillion, which comes out to equal $11 million a minute. Worldwide, there are approximately 1,500 oil and gas firms listed on stock exchanges with a combined value of $4.65 trillion. The group of 20 countries, known as G20, provided subsidies to fossil fuels in 2020 of over $600 billion. During the first nine months of 2021, the largest oil and gas companies made a combined profit of $174 billion. In order to keep profit and costs to customers high, oil companies were reluctant during this time to ramp up production to help reduce costs to consumers. Many of the top oil companies made payouts to shareholders of over $36.5 billion, while others bought back $8 billion worth of their own stock. As the country came out of over a year of reduced activity due to the COVID-19 pandemic, demand for products and services increased, creating the need for more gasoline. But according to Jennifer Granholm, U.S. Energy Secretary, quote, the oil and gas companies are not flipping the switch as quickly as the demand requires, end quote. ExxonMobil reported $8.87 billion in net income for its fourth fiscal quarter of 2021. And let me make this clear, that's just for three months. And that is net income, which is the amount of accounting profit left over after a company pays off all of its expenses and American taxpayers are kicking in over $20 billion annually to subsidize the oil companies with profits like this? Couldn't we use that money to, oh, I don't know, help people who really need it? Help pay off student loans, 
fix our infrastructure that has been badly neglected for decades? Or how about we give it back to consumers who have been gouged by high gas prices over the years? This is another case of big corporations controlling our government. For additional details, listen to podcast episode one, Money and Politics, which was recorded last week. It's really shocking how even the Supreme Court of the United States has worked to allow wealthy corporations to buy politicians. Is it any wonder they get such a large handout? This really should make you angry. Remember this the next time you fill up your tank at the pump or pay your heating bill. How does this happen? Lobbying is one way. Let's discuss lobbying for a moment. Lobbying is when individuals, businesses, trade unions, groups, or charities pay professional lobbyists to get the government to change its policies in the favor of the entity that hired the lobbyist. There is an entire industry dedicated to lobbying members of the House of Representatives and Senate in order to garner what their customers want from Congress. Many of these firms are located on K Street, which is a major thoroughfare in downtown Washington, D.C., and are often referred to using the medonym K Street because people don't always understand what that means. And if I got you with that word, medonym, is defined as a word, name, or expression used as a substitute for something else with which it is closely associated. Thanks again to Oxford Languages. This industry will tell you that lobbying is a legitimate and necessary part of the small-d democratic process and that all sides of an issue must be researched and revealed to the folks in Congress so that Congress can draft policies that are equitable to all. Of course, they don't normally share or promote all sides of an issue, only the side they're being paid to promote. Usually, when it comes to big business interests, This is not to benefit the American people, but instead only benefits corporate profits. Lobbyists persuade and pressure lawmakers to advance the interests of their clients, sometimes to the extreme. Every member in both chambers of commerce should have a policy writing team that researches and drafts legislation for the lawmaker. But sometimes the lobbyists write the bills on behalf of the corporations without input from anyone in Congress. I've read that the last time a member of Congress actually wrote legislation was back in the mid-1990s. Hmm. So, lobbyists write the laws based solely on what's best for their corporate client. Congress then sells the proposed laws to the public and lobbyists pay Congress commissions for passing their laws. Let's dig into this a bit further. You've probably heard the term special interest groups. That can represent a wide degree of entities, including foreign governments. That term certainly stands for multinational corporations with Wall Street offices, 
banks, financial groups, and also smaller groups of individuals who join together and form a group to promote a mutual interest. All likely have a bevy of high-dollar lawyers who actually draft the laws and write the briefs. It's very likely that no one a citizen actually voted for is involved in the origination process of these briefs. A lot of this legislation is low-profile stuff with minor changes to laws, regulations, or policies that are already in place. These minor changes are rarely covered by the media, and thus no one pays attention to them. Sometimes, the process whittles away at existing legislation in small pieces over a long period of time in the hope that no one notices the cumulative changes. Lobbyists normally have access to anyone they need to have access to. They're often former members of the House or Senate, or former staff members of a former or current member of Congress. In short, they know all the right people. Often, lobbyists will visit politicians at their office or invite them to a junket, which is an out-of-town event. These out-of-town events are normally held at extravagant destinations and at luxurious resorts. Weekend ski trips are popular, I understand. Aspen for the weekend, Senator? At some point during the event, the politician will get the hard sell. It will be brief, as the lobbyists want the politician to enjoy their little vacation and make lots of pleasant memories that they can reflect on when the bill comes up for a vote later. If this all seems a bit distasteful and seedy, it is. This situation is ripe for compromise, conflicts of interest, and corruption. Keep in mind, in many instances, constituents don't have this type of access to their own elected politicians. Since 2011, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP, and the American Petroleum Institute, API, have spent a combined $452.6 million lobbying the federal government. Of this total, the four oil giants employed an average of around 40 lobbyists per year and spent a combined total of $374.7 million on federal lobbying, while the API employed an average of 48 lobbyists per year and spent $78 million of that total. If all of this makes you wonder how Congress justifies continued subsidies to the oil companies when the oil companies are making huge profits, it's really only necessary to consider the impact money and lobbying have had on lawmakers' continued support for this program. In case you didn't catch it, the JED in the title of this episode refers to a fictional character by the name of Jed Clampett in the television series The Beverly Hillbillies from the 1960s and early 1970s. In the show, Jed was a rural family man who was out hunting for food and ended up shooting into the ground from which a bubbling crude spewed forth. Now, Jed and his family, despite the Beverly Hills mansion with cement pond in back, 
weren't all that impressed with the wealth and luxuries this oil provided them. But the president of the Commerce Bank of Beverly Hills, a character named Milburn Drysdale, surely was concerned about keeping all of that money in his bank, regardless of what he had to do to make that happen. The Beverly Hillbillies was a popular comedy show in its day and still has a following in reruns. But the character of Milburn Drysdale surely is reflective of many today when it comes to money. Anything goes, and money is all that really matters. Pollute the air and water, destroy other natural resources, do whatever it takes. It's all good as long as it's for money. In this case, reality follows fiction. One more thing before I close out this episode. There is evidence that shows the oil industry knew over 50 years ago that fossil fuels were harmful to human health. Internal oil company memos and reports prove that the industry knew burning fossil fuels caused air pollution and that pollutants could lodge deep in the lungs instead of being removed in the throat, leading to serious health problems down the road. They even knew that their very own workers might have children with birth defects related to this pollution. Despite this, the oil industry spent decades aggressively lobbying against clean air regulations. The goal of the industry was to spread doubt fossil fuels led to numerous health issues, despite a continually growing body of scientific proof that linked the burning of fossil fuels to these health issues. The industry counteracted all of this data by putting out its own profuse amount of material with the goal of confusing lawmakers, which ended up deterring them from passing legislation that limited pollutants. A 1967 internal report at Imperial Oil, an Exxon subsidiary, noted that the petroleum industry was, quote, a major contributor to many of the key forms of pollution, end quote, and took surveys of, quote, mothers who worried about possible smog effects, end quote. The big oil companies and the industry knew that what they were doing was harmful to the environment as well as to human health. This reminds me of the years when the tobacco companies advertised how smoking cigarettes was good for you. One camel cigarette ad from years ago even insinuated that smoking a camel was good for your throat. So cooling. We were told that more doctors smoked camels than any other brand. And if doctors smoked, surely it can't be bad for you, right? Now we know better. The world is beginning to wake up to what fossil fuels have done to our health as well as to our planet. And as the years pass by, that evidence will grow more and more. Future generations will still likely require clean air to breathe and potable water to drink to sustain life. So we definitely need to do something more than what we've been doing. And who pays for all this damage? It seems to me it should be the entities that are responsible, the corporations that knew what they were doing was harmful and continued to do it, even cover it up.
It's time to take action. We can start by insisting that Congress puts an end to subsidies to the industry. And, like the tobacco companies, they need to start paying for the damage they've done. And while we're at it, how about passing some laws that stop the obscene flow of money into every area of our political process? No more allowing the chambers in Congress to police themselves and make up rules that allow them to profit personally from their positions at the expense of everyone else. Nothing will change unless we the people demand things change. Thank you for listening. I would be grateful to you if you'd subscribe and share this podcast to let your friends and family know about it. You can also find me on Twitter at FederalAndy. Be happy, safe, and healthy, and I'll hopefully be talking to you again next week. Thank you.